0: So we're continuing our mini-series through the book of Jonah. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Jonah chapter 1, and then Jonah chapter 2, and today, Jonah 3. Um, And the last time we saw Jonah, he was in the belly of a great fish. He was crying out to God. It was a prayer of thanksgiving. And we talked a lot about thanksgiving. Um, And then we saw Jonah spit up on the dry land. And so we'll pick up now in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and of his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed not or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands." Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from this fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. He did not do it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to Him again and ask Him for His help. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we we come to You this morning very needy. Lord, we... Um, We need you. We need your help this morning. We need you as we look into your word that we ask that you would teach us from it. Lord, I know that I need you uh, to speak uh, this hour, that I have no words for these people, but that you do. That your word is rich and powerful. So I pray, O Lord, that you would speak to us this morning from your word, that you would teach us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, One of my favorite memories of my childhood is on Friday nights, my family and I, we would often... Load in the car. We'd go out to eat, and we would go to the movies. This was sort of a family tradition. This is something we enjoyed doing, and we would go see a family movie. And, and that's probably why I give you so many movie illustrations, because I grew up at the movie house a little bit. Uh, but uh, we would go, and it was always a fun time. But whenever we would kind of coming and going to the movie theater in Martin, Tennessee, where I grew up, there was a little corner you had to go around to get to the movies, and uh, to get to, and usually there was this little church in town. And very often on a Friday night, they would set up camp kind of at this little corner next to the movie theater. And as you would drive by, their pastor would be like preaching through a megaphone, this open-air preaching. And the people would be holding up signs, the church members. The message of this pastor and of these signs was usually something like, you know, repent or burn or something like that, okay? And um, even as a church kid, even as someone who grew up in church, you know, that I think kind of colored my perception of the word repent, The word repent and repentance kind of took on this sort of interesting, maybe negative connotation. Like, that's what I think. When I hear the word repent, I think of repent or burn, you know, something like that. And I think maybe that's perhaps the way it is for a lot of us. Maybe we we often associate the word repent or repentance with this sort of fire and brimstone preaching. Maybe you had an open-air preacher in your town at some point um, giving a similar kind of message. But, you know, these experiences can really kind of color the way that we think about repentance, um, another big misunderstanding we might have about repentance is that repentance is only something you do when you become a Christian, that you repent of your sins, you believe in Jesus, and that's it. That's, that's, you're done with repentance. Um, rather, what we see from the Bible seems to be that repentance is meant to be a daily part of the Christian life. And so this morning, as we look at, the book of, as we look at Jonah 3, we're going to talk about repentance. We're going to try to sort through some of our misconceptions, some of our misunderstandings maybe about repentance. Now, when we come to this passage in Jonah 3, there's something important for us to remember about this little book of Jonah. Nineveh was a city in Assyria, okay? Nineveh, Assyria was like the enemy of Israel. Um, As far as we know, Jonah was not primarily a missionary. We see him sort of functioning as a missionary here in Jonah 3. But as far as we know, Jonah was, he was a prophet in Israel. That was his his day job. Um, He was a prophet uh, to, to God's people in Israel. But... Um, God sends him to Nineveh. And I think part of what this little book is, the purpose of this little book of Jonah is to serve as an indictment against Israel. Um, At this time in in Israel's history, Israel was steeped in idol worship. They were sinning. They had turned against God. Um, God continued to send prophets to them to call for repentance, to preach to them. And their hearts continued to grow colder and colder to this call. Uh, And so, yet when God sends Jonah to this pagan city of Nineveh, in this pagan country of Assyria, and he preaches, the city repents. And so we see this is the thing that needed to be happening in Israel, but they weren't doing it. And so, um, God is showing Israel and us what true repentance looks like. And he's using a wayward prophet and a pagan city to do so this morning. So, with that, um, let's consider repentance this morning. So, the first thing we, we see in this passage is what drives us to repentance. We see that in the first few verses. And the answer is what what the answer to what drives us to repentance is the word of God. That's what that's what drives us to repentance, the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now Jonah 3 begins like a mirror copy of Jonah 1, okay? Jonah God says to Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, arise and go to Nineveh. And it says, Jonah arose and he fled. Okay? And here we get to Jonah chapter 3, and verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Okay? But this time Jonah, he arises and he obeys. But notice what God says to him in, in, in verse 2 there. He says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. But Jonah has no words of his own to give to the Ninevites. Okay? Jonah is taking this message that God is giving him. Go and declare this message that I tell you to people in Nineveh. And what is that message? Well, we see the answer in verse 4. We see this. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Um, Now, this is not meant to be a uh, sort of the totality of his message. It's not that he was just repeating that one phrase over and over um, but Jonah likely had a, a a a lot more a lot more to say to the Ninevites. But this is serving as sort of a summary of what he was saying. The summary of Jonah's message was forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's not really there's no mention of God. There's no mention of repentance. There's no mention of sin. It's just a warning of judgment, this impending judgment that's coming. And so. Um, but look at what the result of it is. Look at verse 5. Look at what, what the result of, this, of his preaching is. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So this very simple message that Jonah has, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This very simple message turns the city upside down. Because it's God's word. Because it is powerful. It is, it is active. Um, it had the power to do that because it was a message from God. And God had blessed that message. Um, so if there's ever a passage, sort of a little aside, we're talking about repentance today, but let me just give you a quick little aside here. If there's ever a passage to encourage you about evangelism, I, I would submit Jonah 3 might be it, okay? A lot of times we can be sort of frightened about sharing the gospel. We, might, we worry we might not say the right thing. What if I say something that, that turns the person off? What if I say something that pushes them away from Jesus? What if I say the wrong thing or misquote the Bible or something like that? Um, What if my message is just too simple? What if I don't really know enough uh, Scripture to, to share the Gospel yet? We have to remember that God blesses His Word, that He blesses His Gospel, that He is at work in hearts and lives of people. And we can present a very simple Gospel presentation to someone, just as Jonah did, and that person respond, that person believe the good news. Um, And so let that be just a little aside. That's free of charge today, okay? Just a little aside, uh, an encouragement in our evangelism um, to look at Jonah chapter 3 and remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. So God's Word, as we see here, is what drives us to repentance. And this is good news for you and I today, because unlike the Ninevites of old, we don't have to wait for God to send a prophet to come walk the streets of Meridian. Um, We have God's Word right here, right? We have God's Word on our nightstand. We have it on our phones now. Uh, we, you have multiple translations and multiple copies probably in your house. Um, and so we have easy access to it and we're very blessed in that way. But so we see, I think that spending time in God's Word, that's sort of the first step to living a life marked by repentance. Because that's what drives us to repent. That's what, that's what drives us to repentance is spending time in God's Word. Now I think I've told this story, this illustration before, but it was a long time ago, so you probably forgot. So I'm going to use it again. Uh, there's this poem, a, a poet, a German poet, I believe, named Rilke. Rilke, maybe. Uh, he has a poem called "Archaic Torso of Apollo," and it's an interesting poem. He's there's this is a real statue, the the torso of Apollo. Um, I think it's maybe in the Louvre or something like that. But um, he, he describes he's a poet from like the 1800s, but he describes looking at this statue. And he's just describing the statue and all the statue. All that's left of the statue is an ancient statue. And all that's left is this torso. Um, but he's describing, kind of looking at the statue, and it's it's he's sort of analyzing it and thinking about it. But the, and the fo- the poem is fine, but it gets really interesting in the last stanza. He's gazing at this po- at, this, at this statue, and he thinks to himself suddenly that he imagines that the the statue is gazing back at him. And the last line of the poem, he says, "You must change your life." So here's this guy, this poet. He's looking at this beautiful work of art in a museum. And for a moment, he imagines that this beautiful work of art is gazing back at him. And it makes him want to change. It makes him want to be a better person. We do not have to imagine that when we come to the Bible. Uh, the Bible promises that. That when we, when we read the Bible, uh, that it is a living and active book. That whenever we gaze into it, it is gazing back at us. Uh, showing us who we really are. Um, turn with me, if you will, to a very familiar passage, Hebrews chapter four it 's a familiar verse, but we're definitely worth our time to go check it out this morning. Hebrews chapter four Hebrews chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen, a, a very familiar, famous passage about the bible, about god 's word. Verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so we see here that the word of God is a living book. It's not like any other book. It's living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, It's... It's a book that is as sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, um, and that when we read it, it does something to us. It pierces us. It opens us up. It discerns our thoughts and our intentions—the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And when we, you know, you saw—we saw back in Jonah chapter one that Jonah learned that you cannot hide from God. You cannot run from God. But we see that when... This is especially true when we're reading the Bible. When we're reading God's Word, it exposes us. It shows us... It's like a mirror in a way, showing us our hearts, showing us who we really are. And so to be confronted with the true intentions of our hearts, the true desires and intentions of our hearts, this can only lead us to two outcomes. If we really get a good glimpse of our hearts and how how sinful we are and how lost we are, how desperately we are without God, when we get a glimpse of that in our hearts... There's only two possible outcomes. It either drives us to despair or it drives us to Jesus. It drives us to Jesus in true repentance and faith. And so we see that God's word is what drives us to repentance. So our next question may be, well, what is repentance? Okay, if God's word is sort of the, the, the thing that drives us there, that takes us there. But what is repentance? How do we define it? What is it? You know, we might be tempted to think that repentance is simply something like feeling sorry for your sin and turning away from your sin. Um, But that's only part of it, okay? That's not the full thing. Certainly, repentance involves turning away from your sin, but there's more to it. Um, In John Calvin, in his excellent uh, uh, volume, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he has a chapter on repentance. It's really great. And he talks about two different types of repentance in there. He says there's a repentance of the law and there's a repentance of the gospel, Repentance of the law is when a person feels wounded by their sin. When a person fears the wrath of God, but never moves past that. And he mentions actually a biblical example of Judas. Judas would be an example of this repentance of the law. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and and soon realizes his sin. He soon feels sorry for it. He tries to give the money back, but he finds no peace. He finds no comfort. Um, His repentance is a repentance of the law, and he commits suicide. He takes his life. It's very tragic. So turning away from our sin is only half of of what true repentance is. The other half is turning to God. So turning away from our sin and turning to God. This is what Calvin calls the repentance of the gospel. And he describes it very beautifully in these words. He says that the repentance of the gospel or true repentance is when a sinner feels sorely afflicted by their sin, but rises above it and lays hold of Christ as medicine for his wound as comfort for his dread, and as the haven of his misery, so that's what true repentance looks like. It's it's to see our sin, to see the sin in our hearts and lives, and to feel sorrow for our sin, and to turn away from that sin to find forgiveness in the Lord and comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, Calvin in his in that chapter specifically mentions Nineveh in Jonah chapter three as an example of this true repentance, and we see it very clearly here in verses six through nine. Uh, we already read in verse 5 about how uh, from the least to the greatest, the city had, had begun to repent. And verses 6-9 through nine really just kind of expands upon that and gives us a kind of a closer view of what that looks like. And we see that the word, that's the word of God, the word that Jonah had been preaching in Nineveh. The word reaches the king. And he goes immediately into the ancient act of mourning. He removes his robe. He puts on sackcloth. He sits in ashes. You know, this was a sign of mourning. you remember from the book of Job. This is what Job does in his mourning. And we see here that the king issues a decree. And he tells everyone, no one eat or drink. We are, you know, we are repenting. We are, we are mourning over this uh, judgment that D- Jonah has proclaimed. But notice what he says in verse, uh, in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. This is part of his decree. He says, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And so we see both parts of repentance there. Turn from the evil, your evil way, the violence in your hands, and cry out mightily to God. Uh, these are the, th- this is true repentance, to turn away from our sin, to turn our hearts and minds to God, to cry out to Him, to seek forgiveness. If you want a master class on what true repentance looks like, um, Psalm 51 is the best place to look. Let's turn there for just a moment this morning. We're just going to look at a couple verses. But Psalm 51, you recall, is... Was written by David after David had sinned with Bathsheba after he had had her husband Uriah killed. This was a heinous sin in God's eyes, and Nathan the prophet came to him to accuse him. And we see that in the um, that's written for us there in the uh, just above the just above the um, verse one. We see that description. Now that this is when David wrote this psalm, and right in the aftermath of Nathan the prophet coming to him, and. Um, this, this whole psalm, we're, not gonna look, we're just going to look at the first couple of verses, but this whole psalm is a picture of true repentance. Of, of hating and feeling shame for your sin and, and turning away from your sin and turning towards God. Let's so look at verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. And verse 3 and 4 as well. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words. And blameless in your judgment. And this whole psalm is just a beautiful picture of true repentance. Of of a person who has been confronted with the ugly reality of sin in their heart. And who is ashamed of that. Who is disgusted by that. And who realizes that that sin is an affront against God. It is It is an offense to him. And in a beautiful language, david he responds in true repentance, and that is a wonderful passage for all of us to think about our own repentance to to meditate on what repentance looks like and So this brings up a good point for us, right David here is repenting in psalm fifty one not as a first time convert, okay David is repenting as a man who 's been a man after god 's own heart, a man who 's a believer, and so we learn here that repentance is not just something that we do. Um, once and then we're done. It's not just something we do when we're converted. converted but uh, repentance is meant to be part, a regular part of the Christian life. Uh, Martin Luther, in his famous 95 Theses that you know, started the Reformation, he nailed on the, the church door in Wittenberg. The very first thesis on that document says this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of Repentance. That well, That's what we're intended to do. When Jesus Christ, um, as you'll see in the verse on the front of your bulletin, as Jesus began to preach, let's, let's look at that actually. Um, on the front of your bulletin, I put this verse, Mark one fourteen 14 14-15. This is the very beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry. And we read this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of John and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is, re- is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This was the, the beginning of Jesus' preaching ministry. And it was repent and believe. And uh, Martin Luther is saying that when Jesus said repent, that this was not meant to be a one-time thing. This was meant to be a daily part of the Christian life. This is to be the pattern of our lives. I heard another pastor say it like this. He said the Christian life is like a march. okay? But instead of left, right, left, right, that's not the, that's not the march of the Christian life. The, the march of the Christian life is repent, believe. Repent, believe. Repent, believe believe that 's how we are to move forward in the Christian life, and so let's let me ask us to, to consider this morning what are the sins in our hearts and in our lives that we are, need to repent of? What are the things that that we are in need of repenting of this morning maybe it's perhaps it 's anger for you um, maybe you 're angry at God over something that 's happened in your life maybe you 're angry. At family members, angry at coworkers, uh, maybe you're to a point where you realize that you're an angry person, that, and you're embarrassed by that. You're ashamed of that. Um, you wish that you weren't that way. It fills you with shame to think about it. And maybe this morning you need to confess that to God. Uh, you need to confess your anger to God. Maybe you need to confess that anger to your spouse and to your children, to your coworker, to someone who's been on the receiving end of that anger. Or maybe for you, it's not anger. perhaps maybe it's greed, Uh maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride or worry, but whatever sin that you find yourself wrestling with and being um, hindered by over and over and over, uh, start the daily habit of turning away from that sin and turning to God, to calling out to Him in the name of Jesus uh, to help you, to calling out to Him and asking for forgiveness, confessing that to Him. This is not something that we do once or twice, but this is something as Christians we are to do every day. The Bible promises us and assures us that God is faithful and just. And that when we confess our sins to Him, that He will forgive us and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a beautiful promise for us. So that's what repentance is, turning away from our sin and turning towards God. What is the result of, de- of repentance? What, what is the fruit of repentance? What, is it, what does it give us? What does it do for us? Well, We see the answer to that in verse 10, back in Jonah 3. We see this, uh, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So what's the result of repentance? Well, very simply, it's a right relationship with God. God had warned of this destruction of Nineveh. He had warned them, and and, uh, the people had turned to Him in true repentance, and and He'd forgiven them. He relented the disaster that Jonah had prophesied, Jonah had warned them about, And God's wrath was turned away. And we see this uh, confirmed elsewhere in the Bible too, right? That Romans 5 tells us that before we're converted, before we're Christians, we were God's enemies. And yet He loved us, He sent His Son for us. And when we repent and believe, when uh, when we enter the family of God, when we enter the household of God through faith in Jesus, that now we're no longer enemies, we're His sons and His daughters. It's as if there was a cup of God's wrath. That had our name on it. And Jesus drank it. It was meant for us. But he drank it every drop for us. He took it on himself. Um, But what about this daily kind of repentance? Let's talk about that for just a minute. What about when we're already a Christian? Um, We're already a son or a daughter of God. Um, It's not that... um, how, How does repentance... How does the daily repentance change our relationship with God there? Well, we know that as a Christian that God... God does not cannot love us any less than he loves us right now, okay, we know that right that his love is steadfast god 's love does not change uh, it, because god's love for us is not based on our performance God's love for us is based on the work of Jesus, the work that Jesus did on our behalf, the perfect work that he's done but there is st- there are still consequences for our sin when we as a Christian when we sin right there are still consequences for that it's just as if when if one of my children disobeys me. I don't stop loving that child, right? But it displeases me, okay? It's the same way in our relationship with God. When we sin, God does not stop loving us. He does not love us less than He loved us five minutes ago. His love for us does not waver, does not go up and down. His love for us is perfect. But when we sin, we do fall under God's fatherly displeasure. Uh, It does displease Him. It does affect our relationship with Him. It affects our communion with God when we sin. You know, just one little place that, I, that we see this is it's actually an interesting example. But 1 Peter 3, when uh, Peter is addressing husbands and kind of giving instructions to husbands, he says something very interesting, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here. But he basically says, look, if you're a bad husband, it's going to hinder your prayers. Okay, If you're sinning as a husband, if you're sinning against your wife and being a bad husband... And it's going to hinder your prayers. Your prayer life, your relationship with God, is going to be affected. Your communion with God is going to be hindered. It's going to be affected. Another very uh, famous passage uh, that deals with this is in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's turn there again. Back to Hebrews. Uh, Look at Hebrews chapter 12. And this passage um, is one that tells us that as Christians, when we sin, we, we fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And sometimes God disciplines us for our sin. Okay? And this does not mean that God is mad at us. If, we, if God disciplines us, it doesn't mean He's mad at us. It doesn't mean He doesn't love us anymore. In fact, God's discipline is a sign that He does love us. Um, and this passage is gonna, it, it mentions that. Uh, that His discipline is actually a sign of His love for us. So let's look at um, Hebrews chapter 12. And this whole passage deals with it. We're just going to read verses 5 through 7. And the writer to the Hebrews says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not, regard, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His, his Father does not discipline? So we see that as Christians, when we sin, um, it does affect our relationship with God. It doesn't affect God's love for us. But it does. uh, We do come under God's fatherly displeasure, um, and He does at times discipline us when we sin. Um, And so, what we see then is that this daily practice of repentance is actually—it is doing something in our relationship with God. It's drawing us closer to Him. A lack of repentance in our lives can make us feel that God is distant. A lack of repentance in our lives can make us feel that His presence—we maybe don't feel His presence like we once did. Uh, a lack of repentance can make us feel that uh, we don't experience that communion with Him that perhaps we once did. And this is what the, the book of Jonah is trying to show to the Israelites and to us today as well. That this repentance that Nineveh experienced is what Israel was missing. This is what Israel was lacking. This is, this is what they needed. And perhaps this is what's missing in our lives this morning as well. Repentance. Perhaps that's what we're missing. Maybe you look back on your life as a Christian and you think... You know, I just I don't feel as close to God as I did back in college. Or I don't feel as close to God as I did five years ago. I don't feel as close to God as I did last year. You know, I just, I just don't feel His presence in the same way that I used to. Um, and there can be a number of reasons for that. I mean, we, we're never going to experience God's presence perfectly until we're in heaven, until we're with Him. But perhaps um, the reason is that we've fallen out of this, this habit of repentance. Perhaps we've fallen out of the Christian march. Of repent and believe. Repent and believe. Perhaps we've fallen out of that rhythm, that pattern of the Christian life. Um, one of the early church fathers uh, back in the 400s was a, a man named Jerome. And Jerome um, wrote about a dream that he had one night. Okay? And here, here was his dream. In this dream, he, he said he saw Jesus. And in his dream, he said he, he collected all of his money and he said, Jesus, here's all my money. And Jesus said, I don't want your money. And so Jerome rounded up all of his possessions, got all of his stuff together and said, Jesus, here's all my stuff, here's all my possessions. And Jesus said, I don't want your possessions. And so Jerome then turned to Jesus and said, well, what can I give you? What, what do you want? And Jesus simply replied, give me your sins. That's what I came for. I came to take away your sins. Beloved, that's what Jesus came for. He came to take away our sins. He came to save us. He came uh, to give us freedom uh, from our sins. He came to reconcile us to God. And here's the promise of the Bible, that when we confess our sins, that when we repent, that God forgives every time. That he promises, us to, he promises to forgive us. He promises to cleanse us. He promises to take away our sins as far as the east is from the west. He promises to conform us to the image of, his, of Jesus, His Son. He promises to make us holy. So what are we waiting for this morning? Let us go to Him in repentance. Uh, Not just today, not just on the Lord's Day, but every day. Let us find the joy that can only come from turning away from our sin and turning to rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to Him again in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask... um, we ask that you would help us to be people of repentance, that we would be people who repent. Lord, we know that um, uh, there, are many things, there are many things in our lives that probably we need to repent of. Many things that we maybe have neglected, many things we've overlooked for weeks and months and years. Lord, we pray that you're, the sweetness of the gospel, the sweetness of your forgiveness, uh, the joy of your salvation, we pray that these things would draw us to you in repentance. That we would experience again the freshness of the communion, uh, the, the joy of that communion, the joy of your presence with us, Lord. That we would experience that again as we uh, follow you in faith and in repentance. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.